And I've struggled as a parent for over 30 years. And I think I have observed that the most frequently asked question is not how can I be a better parent or how can I be prepared for parenting. I think the most frequently asked question is what can I do after I've blown it? I mean, how can I fix up what I've broken? And how can I make up for what I have messed up? That's what I want to deal with this morning. How to, um, what to do after you've blown it. Before I get to the text, I want to give two or three basic principles that are undeniable and incontrovertible and somewhat painful that relate to, to humanity, to mankind in general. The first is that all are imperfect. Everybody is imperfect, including the children. I think that parents carry an enormous amount of guilt because they feel so responsible for the actions, almost totally responsible for the action of their children. That's uh, unrealistic because children have a will of their own and the fact is that parents are part of the problem and the solution and children are part of the problem and solution and all are imperfect. And parents not only have the responsibility to nurture a child, but he has a responsibility, they have a responsibility to restore the child, which is difficult. Because when the parent gets the child, he has damaged goods from beginning. As soon as the child is born, he's dealing with damaged goods. As soon as a child is born, the Bible says that he is damaged good spiritually. He has a propensity to sin. He has the Adamic nature, which means that he is inclined to do wrong. You've ever noticed that you don't have to teach a child to do wrong? I mean, that comes naturally. What you have to do is teach them to do right. So from the very beginning, this parent has this problem on his hands. He has to deal with an, a flawed material and a damaged goods. All are imperfect. Second incontrovertible principle, you cannot go back and change the past. Oh, how we all wish that were possible. We'd like to set our foot on Fantasy Island with just one wish. If I had that wish, it would be that I could go back and redo some things and undo some other things. I'm sure that if I could have that fantasy wish, I'd do it a whole lot better this time. But that is a wish that will never be granted. Somebody said that Life is like a coin. You can spend it any way you want to, but you can spend it only once. Parenting is like that. You can do it any way you want to, but you can only do it once. And I've noticed that about the time you get a hang, to get the hang of how to be a parent, 
they're grown and gone. And then you got grandkids, and everybody knows what grandkids are for. They're to spoil. I mean, it's not a matter of parenting them. It's a matter of spoiling them. You can't go back and undo the past. Third principle, and I warn you, this is the most painful and one of all. You and I are accountable and responsible for our mistakes. Each of us is. Even the innocent ones. And I have often been guilty of saying, well, you know, I did the best I could as though doing the best I know how would, you know, kind of absolve the problems. It, you know, we're all responsible for our mistakes, even our innocent ones. So that if I don't know much about driving a car and I drive the car when it's low on oil and it ruins the engine, it's not going to do me any good to tell the mechanic, well, I just didn't know any better. I did the best I could. Most mechanics I know will go ahead and charge you the whole price. I mean, they're not going to give you a discount because you didn't know any better. You and I are responsible. Now, the reason I bring this up this morning is not to lay some more guilt on you. God knows we have more than we can handle as it is. It's not my purpose this morning to bring this up, to lay more guilt on you, but just to point out the fact that, that to blame someone else or to blame some circumstances doesn't help or solve the problem. It's so easy for somebody to point the finger of blame on someone else or on some circumstances. It doesn't help the situation at all. And God has this tremendous, enormous capacity for forgiveness and for restoration and for grace for that person who is willing just to face up to his own failure. He has an enormous capacity to forgive and to help that person who will admit his own failure. And he has very little tolerance for that person who is always pointing the finger at some other person or some circumstance. We're excellent at that. We learned it from our forefathers. We got it from Adam. I mean, he was excellent at playing the blame game. So the first step is just the admission of our own part in the failure. Those are three principles. Still not to the text yet. I want to do two other things. I want to suggest some things that will not help at all. The first is, it will not do any good, it will not help for us to think that it's all our fault. Now I alluded to that in the first point. I want to clarify that just a little bit. It doesn't help, any mad, it doesn't help anything to think that it's all our fault because it's not all anyone's fault. If it's, a par if it's parenting or divorce or broken relationship, it's always a two-sided event. It's always a two-sided story. It's not always the fault, all of it, of one person or one group of people. Um, the blame, you know, if we play the blame game, <laughs> it, don't put it all on one person. And I think that parents are in a catch-22 to begin with. I've often, been, I've often said, you know, I just haven't spent enough time or whatever. 
But I've observed that there's never enough time for kids, for the children, and there's never enough money that you can spend on them, and there's never enough uh, you know, energy that can be placed there, regardless of how much you spend or how much you do. There's never enough to carry out the demand that's placed upon us as parents or as children. And I think that there is nothing that can create as much guilt as the guilt that comes with parenting. Now I want you to look over at that little passage of Scripture I told you I'd be alluding to in Galatians chapter 3. And I want you to look at verse 26 of Galatians 3. We've been studying Galatians on Sunday night, and we've been through this before. Well, look at verse 26, and then we'll go to chapter 4. Verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are sons of God through faith in Christ. You're a child of God. Don't quit reading there. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of, of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now this was the Son of God, this was Jesus. But He says that we are sons of God through faith in Jesus. We become a part of the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't quit reading there. Verse 6. And because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's the most intimate word that a, that a little Hebrew child says. Abba, it's the daddy word. I'm a little bit prejudiced, but I'm glad to know that the first word a Hebrew boy would say would be daddy, Abba. And what he's saying is, is that you and I are not born into the family of God. There's no physical birth into the family of God. But there is a spiritual birth into the family of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And he calls, he refers to it in as, a, as an adoption. But there is this intimate relationship that we have with our Father like a daddy relationship. Now get the picture here. Everyone who has faith in Christ Jesus is on a daddy-son relationship, daddy-daughter relationship with God Almighty Himself. And there's an intimate, deep, personal relationship involved there. But look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Now the point I want to make is this, that even the children of God who have the best parent that one could ever have, a perfect parent, will choose, make choices that are wrong and destructive and dangerous even a child of God who has the best parent that one could ever have will make choices that are so destructive and wrong that will end up, that will result in his absolute failure and sadness and destruction. So regardless of what kind of parent you are, your children will ultimately make choices that are not best for them. John White 
has a book entitled Parenting is Painful and he says parents are admonished to bring up children in the nurture of God and children are admonished to respond to their parents convictions wisely if both play their part all will be well but it takes a parent-child team to make, to produce the happy result. Now watch this. You can never control another human being even if that other human being is your own child. It's wrong, it would be self-destructive to assume all the blame. Second thing, it won't help to be simplistic about biblical scriptures and principles. Now I realize that I'm treading out here, I'm walking out here on this gangplank about ready to be lopped off, but I want to say this. Now I need you to know that what I believe about scriptures, script, the scripture is that it is infallible and it is of God, it is inerrant. And whenever God says never, He means never. He's, if he says, no one who comes to me, I will never cast out, he means he will never cast them out. He that believeth is never condemned. When God says never, it's never. But now, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, there are some times when we make scriptures, we place on scriptures an inflexible rule that was never meant to be there. For example... Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Don't make that verse of Scripture a rabbit's foot of magic, an inflexible rule or law. Generally, most of the time, good parents produce good children, but I'm here to tell you that sometimes it may be rare and a rare exception, but good parenting, what happens? A child makes the wrong choice. Now, I know what you want to say. You want to say, well, that verse means that when he's old, he'll come back to it. That's not what that says. And you're telling me, you're saying something that you reject in me. What it says is that in a general sense, for the most part, if a parent does good parenting, he will have good children. And for the most part, if a parent is a bad parent, he turns out bad kids. But generally that is true. It would be wrong to make Scripture simplistic. Now we're at the text. This is all runway and I've got 15 minutes to do the rest of this. Now I know that chapter 58 of Isaiah was not written to parents. And I know it wasn't written to 20th century America. I'm not that stupid. It was written to an ancient nation, Judah, 800 years before Christ, 2,000 years. Jesus was 2,000 years ago. 2,800 years this was written to an ancient nation. And what Isaiah is doing is trying to give some guidelines as to how to make, fix what they've broken. This nation has turned from God and they've made, 
terrible choices and now they're, the vultures are circling and this nation is about to go down the tube. And Isaiah is giving some help as to what to do now that you've blown it. And I want to take this general principle that was directed to a nation that has blown it and I want to apply that general principle to parents who have blown it for some guidelines as to how to fix what is broken or how to, how to you know, reorganize, uh, how to regroup and start again. And I believe that it is possible to take an Old Testament principle that was addressed to a corporate body as a nation and apply that to us as a group of people called parents. And when we apply that, we're going to find some basic answers. Number one, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Are you hearing me this morning? Verses 7 and 8, look at that. It is, not to, is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? I was watching not long ago and I saw these people having this soup kitchen and this long line of folks were lined up to get food, homeless people. And the first thought that came to my mind as I looked at that, I thought, how must humbling that must be to go and admit that you're hungry and you're naked and you need help. And all of a sudden it occurred to me that the most humble people were not the people in the line to be fed. The most humble people were the people who were feeding them. Now, I hope I'm not reading into this something that's not to be here. But I have a strong conviction that what he is saying is that the key to recovering when relationships are broken begins with an attitude of humility. For pride is the greatest barrier to bringing back a lost relationship. Honey, something happened to us years ago. I know it was not all my fault, but it was more my fault than it was yours. Son, as I look back upon what happened in our relationship, I understand that what happened was not all my fault, but it was more my fault than it was your fault. And I want to declare in your presence my feeling of responsibility and I want to ask your forgiveness. I believe he's saying that that parent reaches out to that child in humility. And don't you think that they're not hurting? They're poor and they're naked and they're hungry and he's saying lay aside the pride and, and the Lord will be your rear guard. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard, he said. We want to run from that kind of thing. But he said, the Lord will keep you from running from that. Lay aside your pride. Humble yourself. Second, verse 9, pray. We don't do enough of that as a family. 
How long has it been since you call the name of your children to God? Especially that child who are children who have drifted away from your love and care. I have a feeling that when that prodigal son went to the far country, his father sat on the porch and prayed his name to God in that analogy. And that prayer just wore on him until one day he came to himself. Pray. In fact, verse 9 says that you cry out to Jehovah and it's, the, it's a word of, of, of agony you agonize before God. Third, remove the yoke from your midst. Verse 9 says it. Let's read it again. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. Now what do you think about when you see somebody pointing his finger? You think, you think of shame. You think of condemnation. He said the first thing is the surrender of your pride and, 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 and begin to pray and, and take away this attitude that points the finger in condemnation. If you took a little seed this morning, as Lucato calls it, the size of a freckle, and you put it in the ground, when that seed begins to germinate and sprout, it doesn't matter how much weight is on the top, it comes to the it pushes its way to the surface. The year was 1934, and Hitler was ravaging Europe with his anti-Semitism. And in this little village, there was this 11-year-old boy by the name of Heinz. And these Nazi thugs were in the streets looking for trouble. And whenever Heinz would see them, he'd, he'd get his friends and they would stay away. His father, Heinz's father was a Jew and they practiced Judaism. And one day he met him in the street and he, he met some of these Nazi thugs in the street. And it was a face-to-face conference. Confrontation. It looked like a fight was going to develop. But Heinz had this way, this little boy had this way of saying the right things to bring peace, to sow seeds of peace. And there wasn't a fight. And there never was in the whole city because of this little boy. His parents fled to America. And Heinz became this skilled person who was able to take these words and, and become a fantastic world-famous negotiator of peace. You don't recognize the name Heinz, but his name was anglicized after he came to America. His name is Henry Kissinger. And what he learned to do was he learned to take the finger that was pointed in condemnation and instead use words of peace. Take the yoke from your midst, he says. That is, stop taking those words and that finger and condemning. Now I know that some of you are thinking, boy, I hope my neighbor hears this. I want you to hear this. Number four, make yourself vulnerable and available. I love it, verse 10 and 11. And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places. And that picture there is that this, this desert land that's been consumed by fire, 
Some of us this morning are consumed by the resentment we have. And, 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 and it says, and you'll be fruitful. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You'll, have a, you'll bring a bounty of harvest to make yourself vulnerable and available. One last word. Trust God to bring change. Verse 12. And those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets. When you die, said, they'll call you a restorer and a repairer. What will they call you? I know that sometimes all that we do falls on deaf ears. We have to trust God to bring the change. Your mother used to say, no human being can ever change another human being. But God can change a human being. And we trust Him to bring about change. Our purpose, our responsibility is to is to restore and to rebuild. And you understand that sometimes that does not bring the desired results. Proverbs says, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like bars on a castle. But all I can do is just do my part and become and be known as the person who is the peacemaker And Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So that when I die, somebody will look back. It might be a rebellious child or whatever will look back and say, Whatever else can be said about him, he must be known as a repairer of the breach and a restorer of the broken. Ann Otlin has a book called Children of Wet Cement. She has a 15-year-old son. She had a 15-year-old son when she wrote this by the name of Nels. Listen to this. Only a few months ago, Ray and I made a date with Nels and drove out into the hills overlooking Newport Beach. Nels, said Ray, I've goofed a lot as a dad. I love you very much, but I've said and done a lot of dumb things through your first 15 years. I know I've hurt you. And I know I've not helped a lot of times. I just want you to know that I'm sorry. There was a long silence. Nels didn't quite know how to respond. Are you leading up to something? He asked. Not a thing, said Ray. I just wanted to say that for all the times I've blundered and hurt you and done said stupid things to you, to put you down or to make life tougher for you, I really am sorry. I just wanted to apologize. I chimed in from the back seat of the car. Nels, we didn't do dumb things on purpose, but we know we've been far from ideal parents. We've blown our tempers. We've misjudged you. We haven't always handled you wisely, and that's been tough on you. We get intense and overzealous, over picky on some issues, and we completely overlook other issues. We're just plain old dumb human beings. 
but our goose have an influence on how you turn out. That's the scary part. Ray said, we think you're just turning out great, but whatever scars you've got, they're our fault, not yours. And don't think we don't realize that. That's okay, said Nels. I think you're great. We sure are crazy about you, Nels, I said. We're so proud of you, Ray added. You're terrific in spite of us. You're great parents, said Nels. Over the seats of the car there were pats and smiles and squeezes. That was it. And pretty soon we drove down the hill and home, and, and home again. I'd like to take some of you by the arm, around you, I'd like to put my arm and squeeze you and say, I want you to see me as a peacemaker, a restorer of the breach, and I want you to be that for one another and for your children. And I want children to do the same. Let's pray together.